Chapter 1 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Ficklin. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Cable Chatterton. Chapter 1. The Earliest Pirates. I suppose there are few words in use which at once suggest so much romantic adventure as the words pirate and piracy. You instantly conjure up in your mind a wealth of excitement, a clashing of lawless wills, and there pass before your eyes a number of desperate daredevils whose life and occupation are inseparably connected with the sea. The very meaning of the word, as you will find on referring to a Greek dictionary, indicates one who attempts to rob. In classical times there was a species of Mediterranean craft, which was a light, swift vessel called a myaparo, because it was chiefly used by pirates. Since the Greek verb pyreo means literally to attempt, so it had the secondary meaning of to try one's fortune in thieving on sea. Hence, a pirates in Greek and a parada in Latin signified afloat the counterpart of a brigand or highwayman on land. To many minds, piracy conjures up visions that go back no further than the 17th century, but though it is true that during that period piracy attained unheard of heights in certain seas, yet the avocation of sea robbery dates back very much further. Robbery by sea is certainly one of the oldest professions in the world. I use the word profession advisedly, for the reason that in the earliest days to be a pirate was not the equivalent of being a pariah and an outcast. It was deemed just as honorable then to belong to a company of pirates as it is today to belong to the navy of any recognized power. It is an amusing fact that if in those days two strange ships met on the high seas, and one of them, hailing the other, inquired if she were a pirate or a traitor, the inquiry was neither intended nor accepted as an insult but a correct answer would follow. It is a little difficult in these modern days of regular steamship routes and powerful liners, which have little to fear beyond fog and exceptionally heavy weather, to realize that every merchant ship sailed the seas with fear and trepidation. When she set forth from her port of lading, there was little certainty that even if the ship herself reached the port of destination, her cargo would ever be delivered to the rightful receivers. The ship might be jogging along comfortably, heading well up toward her destined port, when, out from the distance, came a much faster and lighter vessel of smaller displacement and finer lines. In a few hours the latter would have overhauled the former, the scanty crew of the merchantman would have been thrown into the sea, or pressed into the pirate's service, or else taken ashore to the pirate's haunt and sold as slaves. The rich cargo of merchandise could be sold or bartered when the land was reached, and the merchant ships sunk or left to wallow in the Mediterranean swell. It is obvious that because the freight ship had to be big-bellied to carry the maximum cargo, she was in most instances unable to run away from the swift-moving pirate except in heavy weather. But in order to possess some means of defense, it was not unusual for these peaceful craft to be provided with turrets of great height, from which heavy missiles could be dropped on the attacking pirate. In the bows, in the stern, and amidships, these erections could easily be placed, and as quickly removed. And as a further aid, oars would be got out in an endeavor to accelerate the ship's speed. For whilst the pirate relied primarily on oars, the trader relied principally on sail power. Therefore, in fine settled weather, with a smooth sea, the low-lying piratical craft was at its best. It could be maneuvered quickly. It could dart in and out of little bays. It could shelter close into the shore under the lee of a friendly reef. And it was, because of its low freeboard, not easy to discern at any great distance, unless the sea was literally smooth. But all through history this type of vessel has been shown to be at a disadvantage, as soon as it comes on to blow, and the unruffled surface gives way to high crests and deep furrows. It is impossible to explain the growth of piracy as it is to define precisely the call of the sea. A man is born with a bias in favor of the sea, or he is not. 
there is no possibility of putting that instinct into him if he has not already been endowed with that attitude. So also we know from our own personal experience, every one of us, that while some of our friends fret and waste in sedentary pursuits, yet from the time they take to the sea or become explorers or colonizers, they find their true métier. The call of the sea is the call of adventure in a specialized form. It has been said, with no little truth, that many of the yachtsmen of today, if they had been living in other ages, would have gone afloat as pirates or privateers. And so, if we want to find an explanation for the amazing historical fact that for century after century, in spite of all the efforts that many a nation made to suppress piracy, it revived and prospered, we can only answer that quite apart from the lust of wealth, there was at the back of it all that love of adventure, that desire for exciting incident, that hatred of monotonous security which one finds in so many natures. A distinguished British admiral remarked the other day that it was his experience that the best naval officers were usually those who, as boys, were most frequently getting into disfavor for their adventurous escapades. It is, at any rate, still true that unless a man or boy has in him the real spirit of adventure, the sea, whether as a sport or profession, can have but little fascination for him. International law and the growth of navies have practically put an end to the profession of piracy, though privateering would doubtless reassert itself in the next great naval war. But if you look throughout history, you will find that, certainly up to the 19th century, wherever there was a seafaring nation, there too had flourished a band of pirates. Piracy went on for decade after decade in the Mediterranean, till at length it became unbearable, and Rome had to take the most serious steps and use the most drastic measures to stamp out the nests of hornets. A little later you find another generation of sea robbers growing up and acting precisely as their forefathers. Still further on in the history you find the barbarian corsairs, and their descendants being an irrepressible menace to Mediterranean shipping. For four or five hundred years, galleys waylaid ships of the great European nations, attacked them, murdered their crews, and plundered their Levantine cargoes. Time after time were these corsairs punished. Time after time they rose again. In vain did the fleets of southern Christian Europe, or the ships of Elizabeth, or the Jacobean navy go forth to quell them. Algiers and Tunis were veritable plague spots in regard to piracy. Right on through time, the northern coast of Africa was the hotbed of pirates. Not till Admiral Lord Exmouth in the year 1816 was sent to quell Algiers did Mediterranean piracy receive its death blow, though it lingered on for some little time later. But piracy is not confined to any particular nation, nor to any particular sea, any more than the spirit of adventure is the exclusive endowment of any particular race. There have been notorious pirates in the North Sea, as in the Mediterranean. There have been European pirates in the Orient, just as there have been Moorish pirates in the English Channel. There have been British pirates on the waters of the West Indies, as there have been of Madagascar. There have flourished pirates in the North, in the South, in the East and the West, in China, Japan, off the coast of Malabar, Borneo, America, and so on. The species of ships are often different. The racial characteristics of the sea rovers are equally distinct, yet there is still the same determined clashing of wills, the same desperate nature of the contests, the same exciting adventure. And in the following pages it will be manifest that in spite of differences of time and place, the romance of piratical incident lives on for the reason that human nature, at its basis, is very much alike the whole world over. But we must make a distinction between isolated and collected pirates. There is a great dissimilarity, for instance, between a pickpocket and a band of brigands. The latter work on a grander, bolder system. So it has always been with the robbers of the sea, some have been brigands, and some have been mere pickpockets. The grand pirates set to work on a big scale. It was not enough to lie in wait for single merchant ships. They swooped down on seaside towns and villages, carried off by sheer force the inhabitants, and sold them into slavery. 
Whatever else of value might attract their fancy, they also took away. If any important forces were sent against them, the contest resolved itself not so much into a punitive expedition as a piratical war. There was nothing petty in piracy on these lines. It had its proper rules, its own grades of officers and drill. Lestarches was the Greek name for the captain of a band of pirates. It was their splendid organization, their consummate skill as fighters, that made them so difficult to quell. I have said that piracy was regarded as an honorable profession. In the earliest times, this is true. The occupation of a pirate was deemed no less worthy than a man who gained his living by fishing on the sea or hunting on the land. Just as in Elizabethan age, we find sons of some of the best English families going to sea on a roving expedition to capture Spanish treasure ships, so in classical times the Mediterranean pirates attracted to their ships adventurous spirits from all classes of society, from the most patrician to the most plebeian. The summons of the sea was as irresistible then as later on. But there were definite arrangements made for the purpose of sharing in any piratical success, so there was an incentive other than that of mere adventure which prompted men to become pirates. Today, if the navies of the great nations were to be withdrawn and the policing of the seas to cease, it is pretty certain that those so disposed would presently revive piracy. Nothing is so inimical to piracy as settled peace and good government, but nothing is so encouraging to piracy as prolonged unsettlement in international affairs and weak administration. So it was that the incessant Mediterranean wars acted as a keen incentive to piracy. War breeds war, and the spirit of unrest on the sea affected the pirate no less than the regular fighting man. Sea brigandage was rampant. These daring robbers went roving over the sea wherever they wished. They waxed strong. They defied opposition. And there were special territories which these pirates referred to others. The Liparian Isles, from about 580 BC to the time of the Roman conquest, were practically a republic of Greek corsairs. Similarly, the Ionians and the Lycians were notorious for piratical activities. After the period of Thucydides, Corinth endeavored to put down piracy, but in vain. The irregularity went on until the conquest of Asia by the Romans, in spite of all the precautions that were taken. The Aegean Sea, the Pontus, the Adriatic, were the happy cruising grounds for the corsairs. The pirate admiral, or as he was designated, the Archipirates, with his organized fleet of assorted craft, was a deadly foe to encounter. Under his command were the Myoparones, already mentioned. Light and swift they darted across the sea. Then there were two, the Hemiolia, which were so called because they were rowed with one and a half banks of oars. Next came the two-banked biremes and the three-banked triremes, and with these four classes of ships the admiral was ready for any craft that might cross his wake. Merchantmen fled before him. Warships by him were sent to the bottom. Wherever he coasted there spread panic through the sea-girt towns. Even Athens itself felt the thrill of fear. Notorious, too, were the Cretan pirates, and for a long time the Etruscan corsairs were a great worry to the Greeks of Sicily. The inhabitants of the Balearic Islands were especially famous for their piratical depredations, and for their skillful methods of fighting. Wherever a fleet was sent to attack them, they were able to inflict great slaughter by hurling vast quantities of stones with their slings. It was only when they came to close quarters with their aggressors, the Romans, and the latter's sharp javelins began to take effect, that these islanders met their match and were compelled to flee in haste to the shelter of their coves. At the period which preceded the subversion of the Roman Commonwealth by Julius Caesar, there was an exceedingly strong community of pirates at the extreme eastern end of the Mediterranean. They hailed from that territory which is just in the bend of Asia Minor, and designated Cilicia. Here lived, when ashore, one of the most dangerous body of sea rovers recorded in the pages of history. It is amazing to find how powerful these Cilicians became, and as they prospered in piracy, so their numbers were increased by fellow corsairs from their neighbors the Syrians and Pamphylians, 
as well as by many who came down from the shores of the Black Sea, and from Cyprus. So powerful indeed became these rovers that they controlled practically the whole of the Mediterranean from east to west. They made it impossible for peaceful trading craft to venture forth, and they even defeated several Roman officers who had been sent with ships against them. And so it went on until Rome realized that piracy had long ceased to be anything else but a most serious evil that needed firm and instant suppression. It was the ruin of overseas trade, and a terrible menace in her own territory. But the matter was at last taken in hand. M. Antonius, Propraetor, was sent with a powerful fleet against the Cilician pirates. They were crushed thoroughly. And the importance of this may be gathered from the fact that on his return to Rome, the conqueror was given an ovation. In the wars between Rome and Mithridates, the Cilician pirates rendered the latter excellent service. The long continuance of these wars and the civil war between Marius and Scylla afforded the Cilicians a fine opportunity to increase both in numbers and strength. To give some idea of their power, it is only necessary to state that not only did they take and rob all the Roman ships which they encountered, but they also voyaged among the islands and maritime provinces, and plundered no fewer than 400 cities. They carried their depredations even to the mouth of the Tiber, and actually took away from thence several vessels laden with corn. Bear in mind, too, that the Cilician piratical fleet was no scratch squadron of a few antique ships. It consisted of a thousand vessels, which were of great speed and very light. They were well manned by the most able seamen, and fought by trained soldiers, and commanded by expert officers. They carried an abundance of arms, and neither men nor officers were lacking in daring and prowess. When again it became expedient that these Cilicians should be dealt with, it took no less a person than Pompey, assisted by fifteen admirals, to tackle them, but finally, after a few months, he was able to have the sea once more cleared of these rovers. We can well sympathize with the merchant seamen of those days. The perils of wind and wave were nothing compared with the fear of falling into the hands of powerful desperados, who not merely were all-powerful afloat, but in their strong fortresses on shore were most difficult to deal with. With the Balearic Islanders in the west, the Cilicians in the east, the Carthaginians in the south, the Illyrians along the Adriatic and their low, handy Liburnian galleys, there were pirates ready to encircle the whole of the Mediterranean Sea. It is worth noting, for he who reads naval history must often be struck with the fact that an existing navy prevents war, but the absence of a navy brings war about, that as long as Rome maintained a strong navy, piracy died down, but so soon as she neglected her sea service, piracy grew up again. Commerce was interrupted both east and west. Numerous illustrious Romans were captured and either ransomed or put to death, though some others were pressed into the service of the pirates themselves. By means of prisoners to work at the oars, by the addition of piratical neighbors, and by mercenaries as well, a huge piratical community with a strong military and political organization continued to prevent the development of overseas trade. This piracy was only thwarted by keeping permanent Roman squadrons always ready. Of course, there were pirates in these early times in waters other than the Mediterranean. On the west coast of Gaul, the Veneti had become very powerful pirates, and you will recollect how severely they tried Caesar giving him more trouble than all the rest of Gaul put together. They owned such stalwart ships, and were such able seamen that they proved most able enemies. During the time of the Roman Empire, piracy continued also on the Black Sea and the North Sea, though the Mediterranean was now for the most part safe for merchant ships. But when the power of Rome declined, so proportionally did the pirates reappear in their new strength. There was no fearful navy to oppose them, and so once more they were able to do pretty much as they liked. But we must not forget that long before this they had ceased to be regarded as the equivalent of hunters and fishermen. They were, by common agreement, what Cicero had designated as enemies of the human race, and so they continued till the 19th century, with only temporary intervals of inactivity. The thousand ships which the Cilician pirates employed were disposed in separate squadrons. In different places they had their own naval magazines located, 
and during that period already mentioned when they were driven off the sea, they resisted capture by retreating ashore to their mountain fastnesses, until such a time as it was safe for them to renew their ventures afloat. When Pompey defeated them, he had under him a fleet of 270 ships. As the inscription, carried in the celebration of his triumph on his return to Rome, narrated, he cleared the maritime coasts of pirates and restored the dominion of the sea to the Roman people. But the pirates could always boast of having captured two Roman praetors, and Julius Caesar, when a youth on his way to Rhodes to pursue his studies also fell into their hands. However, he was more lucky than many another Roman who, when captured, was hung up to the yard arm, and the pirate ship went proudly on her way. In the declining years of the Roman Empire, the Goths came down from the north to the Mediterranean, where they got together fleets, became very powerful, and crossed to Africa, made piratical raids on the coast, and carried on long wars with the Romans. Presently, the Saxons in the northern waters of Europe made piratical descents on the coasts of France, Flanders, and Britain. Meanwhile, in the south, the Saracens descended upon Cyprus and Rhodes, which they took, seized many islands in the archipelago, and thence proceeded to Sicily to capture Syracuse, and finally overran the whole of Barbary from Egypt in the east to the Straits of Gibraltar in the west. From there they crossed to Spain, and reduced the great part thereof, until under Ferdinand and Isabella these Moors were driven out of Spain, and compelled to settle once more on the north coast of Africa. They established themselves notably at Algiers, took to the sea, built themselves galleys, and, after living a civilized life in Spain for 700 years, became for the next three centuries a scourge of the Mediterranean, a terror to ships and men, inflicted all the cruelties which the fanaticism of the Muslim race is capable of, and cast thousands of Christians into the bonds of slavery. In many ways these terrifying Moorish pirates, of which to this day some still go afloat in their craft off the north coast of Africa, became the successors of those Cilician and other corsairs of the classical age. In due course we shall return to note the kind of piratical warfare which these expatriated Moors waged for the most of 300 years. But before we come to that period, let us examine into an epoch that preceded this. End of chapter 1. Recording by Dan Ficklin.